Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we're going to have a choose-your-own-adventure segment. You're Nancy Pelosi. What do you do next after Robert Mueller's testimony before two House committees this week? Plus, could the economy fall apart on a presidential whim? That is a, a scary little line right there. One of our reporters is going to talk us through a story he wrote about the things President Trump's advisors are doing to prevent Donald Trump from uh, tanking the economy before his reelection. As always, we are taping this on Thursday. Today, that's July 25th, so it's all up to date as of then. All right, I want to welcome our first guest this week. Uh, Politico congressional reporter Sarah Ferris joins us on the line from the Hill. Sarah, hello. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. So, Sarah, we want to uh, play forward the the Mueller testimony a little bit. I think by by this point, uh, most of our listeners uh, will will know the the top line. Uh, not much new ground broken uh, in in the former special counsel's appearance before the House Judiciary and Intelligence Committees earlier this week. Um, so at, at, at this point, the the real question is, uh, I think, uh, what's going on among top Democrats on the Hill? What what are they thinking about? where the results of the Mueller investigation have, have pushed them at this point, and, and, and that means Im- impeachment. Well, if I was going to try and read the mind of Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her other leadership deputies, which is, is not necessarily a good idea, but I'll try. I am so happy that I survived to August recess without this impeachment push swallowing up my caucus. And what I mean is the House is going to leave for six weeks, uh, either Thursday or Friday, uh, so very imminently, and... Speaker Nancy Pelosi has survived with her biggest goal, which is to to tamp down on this impeachment push to make sure that it doesn't distract from her caucus going into August recess when they're going to be, her members are going to be holding town halls, going into communities. And with the impeachment push not bubbling over, that means there's a far better chance that a lot of these town halls will be consumed with the issues that they ran on. So healthcare, um, other kinds of accountability, and, and those are the issues that Pelosi would much rather have her members be talking about at this point, uh, looking ahead to 2020. Now, meanwhile, we have seen, though, a a growing number of rank-and-file House Democrats uh, saying that they they do want to start impeachment proceedings or they do want to impeach President Trump. And and we've seen, uh, I'm I'm not sure in public, but certainly behind the scenes, even some tension uh, uh, in terms of of path forward between uh, Speaker Pelosi and some of the the committee chairs uh, who would would be be in charge of this process going forward. Certainly not in public because all of her committee chairs are very deferential to the Speaker. And so it's even been hard for my colleagues and I to nail down some of these disagreements among the chairman and and the speaker uh, on the issue of impeachment because everyone wants to be on the same line. It's not like any of her members are are going rogue and really pushing this publicly, which is which is really important to know. Any of her top her top lieutenants. That's right. 
Right. But then, you know, the, there's I, and I, I think I think Politico has uh, reported yesterday and has reported in the past that uh, J- Jerry Nadler, the judiciary chairman uh, who whose committee would would be the one holding uh, Im- impeachment hearings is, is is has a bit more of an aggressive view on this. Right. But but only behind closed doors. You right, know, he's right. not going on the cable shows and, and making this push, which if he was, we would have, be having a very, very different conversation because she would not have control of this push. Right. Um, the campaign would be. Uh, you know, at a very different place. Now, meanwhile, you took us through kind of the leadership uh, view, the, the the Pelosi view on on impeachment. That that ultimately this is a distraction. You've got the Senate sitting in the way, the Republican controlled Senate sitting in the way of actually removing the president from office, uh, and 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 that you know you've got an election coming up, uh, and and that it might be better to just beat the president with whoever the Democratic nominee is in 2020. But what what's the what, what's the other side of this? What's what's the kind of uh, progressive left, like growing push side of of why why they want to step forward with impeachment? Why that why that they actually have an argument for why this would be a tactical and strategic win for them? Pelosi clearly thinks it wouldn't be, but but there there is the you know there is this argument on the other side, right? And as you alluded to, there are very there are many different angles that that pro impeachment Democrats have argued. And so you do have the progressive left. You have those who came in running against Donald Trump or those who were stunned by his election in 2016 who were already in Congress, and they want him out. They have constituents who are telling them at every single event back home, you need to kick out this president. And I have members telling me about this. You know, John Yarmouth of Kentucky, he represents Louisville, which is an urban uh, stronghold for progressives. He says, people aren't asking me about other issues. They're asking me about impeachment. And so those are the members who who have this uh, in their gut instincts that that it's time to do impeachment and they need to act, uh, you know, if, if not for anything but for political reasons. They need to say, if we did not hold the president accountable, what did we achieve here? You know, looking ahead into history. Now, there's another side that, that you alluded to. It's a tactical instead of a political push here. So uh, what's been, it's been widely reported that a majority of the House Judiciary Committee Democrats are in favor of launching an impeachment inquiry. And that's really notable because these are the members who have the best understanding of how to run these investigations and what would strengthen their hand in the courts. So there's, a, there's an argument by Chairman Jerry Nadler and others that launching a so-called inquiry, which is the very, very beginning of the impeachment process, would, would convince the judges in some of these courts to try and get their hands on, for example, the grand jury documents from the Mueller report that Democrats still haven't been able to get. So they're going ahead with this argument saying this is tactics, this is strategy, this is not politics. And, and that's the argument you hear from, for example, David Cicilline, who's an interesting guy because he's a, a Democrat who's in leadership, very close ally of Pelosi. He actually leads the caucus's messaging arm, and he's in favor of impeachment. So... Mm. He's been an interesting, interesting person to, to watch throughout this, but he has made the argument that it's strictly tactical. And when, when you're talking about the, the judges in these court proceedings, I mean, the, these are uh, current investigations of the, the Trump administration. They're already ongoing in different House committees. But there, there's, a, there's a legal argument that the, the actual the process of impeachment hearings would create a different legal standard uh, in, in the court cases to, to loosen up some of the, this push for documents. That's right. That's, I mean, that's really interesting. 
Yeah, and it's it's a far more nuanced take on this. And But if you look at the numbers, there really are dozens of Democrats who this is the key reason that they are in favor of impeachment at all, uh, because they, they think this could um, lead to them securing more documents and therefore paving a path to do further investigations, not necessarily to oust the president immediately, but to... Yeah, we've got those Republican senators that we mentioned before. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they know where this is going. You know, these are, these, I would say, are, are some of the more realistic members. These are a lot of the folks with legal backgrounds who have been uh, briefed the most intensely on these, on these ongoing investigations. Stepping back a bit, what, what was the broad assessment on Capitol Hill of how the day of, of Robert Mueller testimony went on Wednesday? A lot of the reaction to Mueller's testimony seemed to be like uh, stylistic as, as opposed to substance, probably, I guess, because he wanted to hew so closely to the report. Right. And, and so there wasn't maybe a lot of new substance right. there. Right. Well, th- there is a lot of focus, of course, on the visuals here, on the optics. But that's because that was House Democrats' entire goal with this hearing. Right. They made clear <laughs> going in that there were not going to be any new facts. They have seen the hours and hours of, of Robert Mueller testifying on Capitol Hill. They knew he was not going to color outside the lines. He was going to stick to the script. That's exactly what he did. Uh, Democrats were hoping they could get a little bit more of the kind of made-for-TV moments. As we saw, there were several members who kept trying to get Mr. Mueller to read aloud bits of his own report. You can almost see through their minds that they just want this to be able to run on CNN and MSNBC over and over. If, If Robert Mueller can be the one to mouth these words, uh, then maybe the public will pay attention. And instead, what we got were these snippets of of a member saying something and and Mr. Mueller, of course, saying, you know, that is correct, or I agree, which is is far less sexy television, but it's still something that Democrats hope will illuminate these, what they've had, uh, all these facts that they've had in this report, the, the seven guilty pleas and the charges against 34 people, three different companies that resulted from Mr. Mueller's probe, but the vast, vast majority of the American people are unaware of because they have other things to do. That's such an interesting point. It really does illustrate how, uh, like, how how TV-focused uh, politicians are. I mean, and, and pro- maybe voters, or not just TV, but, like, video in general, right? That they, that this, all this stuff that they were doing, they were just trying to get him to read from this report that was, has been out there for months, but that that was, like, the, 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 the holy grail of... Right. Uh, is, is, it's interesting. I mean, I think it says a lot about how Washington works. But it's also really important. I mean, if you think about the, the, the dozens, if not hundreds, of stories that were filed from, from not just the Mueller hearing, but from this entire investigation, those get buried. Those get lost. Uh, what doesn't get lost are these clips of Mr. Mueller that will keep being replayed over and over. Uh, and so that's what people are hoping that will, will carry them through, and they want that message to sink in which really has not been able to do so because so far the Mueller report has been constricted to a Times New Roman size 12, 448-page report that most Americans are not interested in reading. Not even just most Americans, a lot of members of Congress, right? Uh, they, uh, Politico has done some some great reporting talking to members of Congress about it, just asking them simply, have you read the Mueller report? And the answers have been illuminating. I mean, I I, I don't think it's like too much of a spoiler alert uh, here to tell you that the answer is no a lot of the time. Um but uh, it's going to be interesting to watch uh, what what happens over recess if anything does bubble uh, bubble up, like you said. And it's it, especially given, as as you said, Sarah, that, that Pelosi's really concentrating on the needs of the kind of majority maker side of her caucus. And even if folks in John Yarmouth's district are coming up to him a lot and asking him about impeachment, that's that's very much not what 
uh, reporters on the trail and and the members of Congress themselves are seeing in these kind of battleground districts. Right, uh, and they even want to talk about it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll 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 see what happens from here. We'll see if there's any more uh, pressure on Pelosi that that builds over impeachment uh, over over the course of recess or or not. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to to walk us through it. Of course, good to be here. All right, we're going to move into our second segment in a moment. But first, a short message. Nerdcast will be right back after this. Worldly from Vox is your guide to news from all around the world. Every Thursday, senior writer Zach Beecham, senior foreign editor Jennifer Williams, and defense writer Alex Ward give you the history and context you need to make sense of global stories. If you want to understand news out of Iran, Syria, North Korea, Russia, China, Brazil, Worldly is the podcast for you. And they always save a segment of the podcast for bright, fresh international stories a fruit heist in Spain or Iceland's quest to build a better soccer team. Subscribe to Worldly from Vox on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Welcome back, listeners. Next up on the Nerdcast, what could President Donald Trump do to totally screw up the economy? Or maybe the better way to phrase this question is what are President Trump's advisors making, trying to make sure that he doesn't do to screw up the economy over the next, oh, 18 months uh, going into his uh, re-election campaign. And to talk us through it, we've got our chief economic correspondent and the author of Politico's Morning Money here to help us understand. Ben White, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's been too long. Um, so uh, you you published an article this morning uh, with, with our colleague Daniel Littman uh, in, in which you write, you know, President Donald Trump has one main job between now and Election Day 2020. Don't screw up the economy. Uh, but... He could at at a presidential whim. Uh, tell us what you mean by that. How 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 could Trump? Uh, I mean, this is the best thing that that Trump has going for him into re-election. You look at his his approval numbers up and down the line. How could he screw it up? Right. Well, there are a number of ways that his advisors are worried about him screwing up uh, the economy going into re-election. And as you say, by far his biggest selling point is uh, how the economy has been doing under his watch. And the ways he could screw it up are really ratchet up the trade war with China, put a whole bunch of new tariffs uh, on Chinese imports, and that would freak out markets and would also cause consumer prices to rise. So China trade war is one way he could screw it up. Uh, Another way would have been to force a debt limit fight or a government shutdown, uh, threaten confidence, and the debt limit being the most risky part of that. As we've seen, at least at this moment, it doesn't appear that he's going to do that. He's going to sign off on a spending increase, which in the short term is is good for the economy, take the debt limit off the table so Wall Street doesn't get freaked out. Uh, And the other thing that he could do is continue to bash the Fed all the time and Fed Chair Jay Powell, uh, which markets never really like. Uh, They don't like the idea, the risk that he could try to fire the Fed Chair that'd be really destabilizing. Uh, And he's probably going to get a rate cut from the Fed next week. So as we talked to senior White House officials this week, uh, most of them were basically saying Trump's mantra at this point is do no harm to the economy. Um, As I'm sure we'll talk about, there's some signals that the economy is slowing down. They don't want to add to that. Uh, They want to make sure that we at least have decent growth going into 2020 and job gains and wage gains and all the rest of it. So a number of things that Trump could do to mess things up, but at least as of this moment, uh, he's not doing them. You you foreshadowed my next question. I mean, tell tell us about why why this is such a critical moment in, in terms, you know, as as how Trump and his advisors see this. There are there are it's it's been a long time since the last recession. There are a number of data points that that can 
be pre-recession indicators, have been in the past, that are starting to crop up and alarm some folks. And and th- yeah. that feels like it's kind of the undercurrent of this uh, th- this conversation, the, the story you wrote, the conversation going on at the White House. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, there are some wonky indicators that suggest that this economic recovery, which is the longest on record over 10 years now, hasn't been a blockbuster recovery, uh, not huge periods of super fast growth, but it's been incredibly durable, uh, is showing some signs of age, one of them being what we call an inverted yield curve. And I'm not going to get too nerdy on the Nerdcast and explain (laughs) entirely what that is, but uh, essentially showing that investors are worried about the pace of economic growth slowing down, uh, and that shows up in the bond market. Um, And so that's one indicator. Uh, We've also, we had the the big kind of bounce from President Trump and the Republicans' tax cut last year. Uh, That enhanced growth. Uh, A lot of corporate profits went up and companies did share buybacks and dividends. And you got a period of 3% uh, plus growth, which the president liked. That's kind of come out of the system now. uh, So you're not getting that in 2019. Uh, The rest of the world is slowing down. We've seen a slowdown in China. We've seen a slowdown in Europe. Uh, That's concerning to, you know, central banks and to um, people in the Trump administration. Uh, And most economic forecasters say we'll probably get back to around 2% growth this year from 3% last year. Uh, And that's just, you know, kind of baked into the cake. And and the Trump folks don't want to risk making that worse uh, and tilting towards recession. The last thing any incumbent president wants is an economy moving towards recession in their reelection year. We probably won't get there. There's no obvious reason we should tip into recession. Consumers are still spending a lot. Um, you know, the economy is not doing terribly badly, uh, but it's it's at risk. Uh, and if they do any of these things, if Trump does any of these things that could destabilize it and freak people out, then you get the real risk of recession in 2020. And that would be a nightmare. So this is all sort of born of the idea that the economy is already slowing. Uh, it's not going to be as good as it was for Trump in 2018. So they're very keen not to do anything to enhance a slowdown and really kind of force a recession uh, on the United States. Got it. And I mean, it's, it seems like the, the best example of this thinking is, is this budget deal that, that you talked about, the budget and debt ceiling deal that seems likely to move ahead at this moment. Uh, and and it, as we've seen with past budget deals under, under Trump, there, there can be some fast moves uh, uh, toward the end. I think we had to retape like three episodes of the Nerdcast <laughs> at one point last yeah. year just to, uh, to, to keep up with what became the, the government shutdown at the beginning of this year. But, but anyway, the, the, this deal that appears to at this moment be in place, the, the White House and Congress, Republican White House, Republican Senate, Democratic House have, have agreed – seem to have agreed on how much money the federal government should spend and borrow over the next few years. And it, it seems like a, a big deal. And like you said, it's, it's, I mean, it's going to uh, keep injecting federal money in, into the economy, which, which you know, in, in, the, in the short term helps, helps keep everything running as it, as it has been. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's remarkable that you have people in the White House like Mick Mulvaney, uh, who have historically been such uh, intense budget hawks and during the Obama administration, you know, wanted to shut down the government and threatened to not raise the debt limit over spending and now are pretty much fully signed off on a deal that adds $320 billion in spending and raises the debt limit with really no offsets. Um, but you know, Mulvaney is in the caucus inside the White House, uh, which we refer to as the "Don't Screw It Up" caucus, who are willing to just you know forget about fiscal responsibility or austerity for a while. 
I mean, it really is remarkable. And you, you, you point out Mick Mulvaney, the former congressman, now the, I guess, is he still the acting White House chief of staff? Yeah, he's still but, acting. Yeah. <laughs> now, now White Everybody's House chief of staff. Everybody's acting. You know, he, he, was, he was in charge of the Office of Management and Budget. I mean, the, the, uh, Mick Mulvaney, was, he was part of the 2010 Tea Party wave. He was a huge debt and deficit hawk uh, when uh, Obama was in the White House and, and was, was big on, on pushing the debt limit showdown. In, in 2011, uh, government shutdown in 2013. You know, um, Congress obviously there's a fair bit of turnover when over the course of a decade in in Congress. But like a lot of the folks that Mulvaney was elected with, his fellow travelers are still there in Congress, and they they don't seem to be kicking up an, an enormous uh, uh, kerfuffle about the uh, massive amount of mm-hmm. of uh, l- like you said, you know, uh, unoffset uh, spending, debt limit rise, you name it. Uh, that and right. I mean I I think it's it, it's clear to them how how tied up the economy is in, in the Republican Party's political fortunes as well. Right. I mean, yeah, they do seem to get religion on austerity and spending cuts when there's a Democrat in the White House and kind of wander away from that church uh, when there's a Republican in the White House. I mean, to be fair, we do have the Freedom Caucus kind of tepidly saying, well, we don't like this budget deal and uh, we'll, we're going to oppose it, knowing full well that their opposition is not going to tank it and that you know Democrats who control the House have enough votes to pass it, you know, with or without a whole lot of Republicans. And then uh, Mitch McConnell and Republicans in the Senate will go ahead and uh, rubber stamp it and send it to the president. Um, so, I, you know, there's no real way to describe it other than kind of rank hypocrisy. And personally, it's just frustrating to me because I don't know about you, but I spent the summer of 2011. I remember very vividly being on a bus to the Jersey Shore, hoping for, you know, a nice relaxed weekend when, you know, S&P was about to downgrade the United States for the first time in history because uh, Republicans didn't want to raise the debt limit uh, without serious spending cuts. And, you know, we really had in that time this existential threat of, uh, the U.S. defaulting on its debt and uh, was a really cataclysmic crisis and more importantly screwed up my weekend uh, and screwed up many <laughs> subsequent weekends for the rest of that summer and then into 2012 and 2013 as you mentioned like we just went through these awful periods of um, you know the fiscal cliff and the uh, bringing on the budget control act and the sequester and stuff everybody hated all because our debt and deficit were out of control and we absolutely had to get a handle on spending meanwhile this was all happening as we were trying to recover from the worst recession since the Great Depression. And any economic textbook you will read will say, fine to run pretty significant deficits during those periods of time. You need the federal government to inject money into the economy. Now, flip the script, we are in a period of very low unemployment, solid job growth, had big tax cuts. This is the period of time when historically governments would say, okay, let's figure out a way to improve the long-term debt and debt trajectory. Let's not run trillion-dollar deficits every year. Let's not make the debt 100% of the economy, and we're not doing any of it. You know, I mean, say what you will about whether deficits and debt matter. We're having a huge debate in the economic community about whether they matter at all over the long term. But we've absolutely done the opposite of what you would normally do. Threaten crisis and shut down the government and do debt limit, uh, you know, freak outs when we're in recovery from a recession and now not care about it at all when we are growing relatively fast. So the whole thing is like being in the upside down. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us today and, and walk through it. Real pleasure to be with you. 
Our producer for this episode is Jenny Ahmed, and Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. And one last thing, a quick note about next week. We've got all sorts of Nerdcast extras coming at you centered around the second round of Democratic presidential primary debates. We're going to have a preview episode for you on Monday. We're going to have short recaps for you after each of those uh, two debate nights in Detroit. It's going to be very exciting. We're going to be here to walk you all through it. Once again, thank you so much for listening this week. We will talk to you again multiple times next week.